Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. Welcome to Episode 3, where we will be discussing the seminal book, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. The first edition was published in 1949, but we'll be referring to the revised edition, which is based on Graham's final 1973 version but republished with commentary from Jason Swig in 2006. So why is this book so important? I think The Intelligent Investor should be required reading for any serious investor because it lays some groundwork that is critical to help investors think rationally and correctly about stocks and market psychology. I first read this book about 20 years ago in the year 2000, shortly after reading a biography on Warren Buffett, wherein much credit was given to Graham for Buffett's development in his formative years as an investor. It is widely known that this is Buffett's all-time favorite investment book, and in fact, it was his reading of this book that motivated him to study directly under Graham for his graduate studies at Columbia University, where Graham was an adjunct professor. Buffett has stated many times that the two most important chapters of this book are Chapter 8 and Chapter 20. In this episode, we'll be covering Chapter 20, titled Margin of Safety, as the central concept of investment. Who is Ben Graham? We all know who Warren Buffett is, but here is a brief introduction of Ben Graham. Ben Graham was originally named Benjamin Grossbaum, and he lived from 1894 to 1976. He was born in England to Jewish parents, and his family moved to New York when he was one years old. His father died when he was young, and that led to financially tough times in his youth. He was a successful New York money manager, but is most well-known for his books, Security Analysis, and of course, The Intelligent Investor. Some of his disciples also went on to become prominent money managers. Besides Buffett, these include Charles Brandes, Bill Ruane, Irving Kahn, and Walter Schloss. Graham was known as the Dean of Security Analysis and the father of value investing. As mentioned earlier, he was a part-time prophet at Columbia, where he taught value investing. Before I begin, I'd like to say that the principles and concepts that Graham taught in his writings are just as applicable today. That's because they are irrefutable and self-evident. Graham opens the chapter with the line, This too will pass, which is from an old legend wherein an eastern monarch once requested his wise men to invent a sentence that would apply in all times and situations. How fitting, given the uncertainty we found ourselves in during the pandemic. Sound investing, in his opinion, can be distilled into three words, margin of safety. The easiest way to relate this concept from everyday life is to think of situations where you consciously create a buffer in case things don't quite go as planned. Think, for instance, of the estimated time of arrival on Google Maps before driving somewhere. It may say you need one hour to reach your destination, and then what you'll do, assuming you want to ensure you are punctual, is to build in a margin for error. You might leave, for example, 30 minutes earlier to create a buffer to find parking, grab a coffee, and have a margin for worse-than-expected traffic. Another example would be a bridge. An engineer will design it to be able to take on much more weight than expected. According to Graham, the margin of safety is always dependent on the price paid. It will be large at one price, small at some higher price, and non-existent at some still higher price. 
a large margin of safety renders it unnecessary to accurately estimate the future. If the margin is wide, it is then enough to assume that future earnings will be similar to the past to protect an investor against forecasting errors. The idea is that we can rig our odds and skew them in our favor by requiring a price low enough and being disciplined such that the optimistic case does not need to happen to justify the price paid. If we think back to the dot-com boom that ultimately burst about 20 years ago, we had a situation that was clearly anti-gram and anti-margin of safety. Tech stocks back then had gotten completely out of control to the point where prices were embedding unsustainable growth rates for the underlying companies. Jason Swig provides an example in the commentary of JDS Uniphase, a fiber optics company whose stock price had reached $153 a share in March 2000. This worked out to a market cap for the company of about $143 billion, which, based on $673 million of sales generated in 1999, meant the stock traded at 212 times trailing annual revenue. And here, there were no earnings as the company never reached profitability. The stock price crashed along with all other tech stocks in 2000, and by the end of 2002, the stock closed at $2.47. From that point, an investor would have needed to hold on 43 years to reach the all-time high of $153 at a 10% compound annual rate of return. Interestingly, Graham said the average buyer's biggest risk. Wasn't paying too high a price for good quality stocks, but rather losses were more likely to come from low quality securities at times of favorable business conditions. In today's lingo, we would call them value traps. During COVID-19 and the resultant recession, we can see how Graham's observation is as relevant in the year 2020 as back then. Certainly, the virus-induced lockdown was unnaturally harmful to retailers, and yet most of the businesses that went bankrupt during the lockdown. Think J.C. Penney and J. Crew were already in decline. Graham offers a few thoughts on growth investing. I'm going to read a few snippets from page 517. In investment theory, there is no reason why carefully estimated earnings should be a less reliable guide than the bare record of the past. The growth stock approach may supply as dependable a margin of safety as is found in the ordinary investment. Provided the calculation of the future is conservatively made, and provided it shows a satisfactory margin in relation to the price paid, I still find those words a little surprising coming from Graham, who is identified with the net-net method, or buying at prices at least one third below net current asset value, that is, current assets minus all liabilities, and buying a basket of such stocks. Here, I would interpret Graham as saying that high-growth companies are investable so long as the price is right, and as long as the assumptions about revenue growth and margins are made conservatively. Graham said that the buyer of bargain issues emphasizes the ability of the investment to withstand adverse developments. One example is for revenue growth to fall below investors' expectations. In such an event, the estimate of value would decrease. But if bought cheap enough, the gap between price and value is not totally destroyed, and thus your principal is protected. In such a case, the margin of safety will have served its purpose. But he also has some requirement for quality, adding that if the prospects for a company are definitely bad, the investor should avoid the security no matter how low the price. Realizing the limits of security analysis, Graham promoted diversification. Any given stock pick may work out badly, despite how compelling the initial thesis. An enormous margin of safety should increase the odds of success, but will never guarantee against loss. 
Here, he draws on the example of insurance underwriting, where increasing the number of commitments leads to more certainty that, on the whole, profits will exceed losses. Perhaps the most important argument made in this chapter is that a low enough price can turn a commitment in a mediocre quality company into a good investment opportunity, provided the buyer is adequately diversified. As long as we're staying objective, a great investment case can be made out of companies perceived as the most toxic. Graham highlights the example of real estate bonds in the 1920s when they sold at par and were seen as sound investments. When the depression of the 1930s hit, these bonds defaulted on interest payments and prices collapsed by as much as 90%. Advisors went from recommending them to rejecting them as low-quality issues. But it was the steep price drop that made these securities very attractive and safe as the values behind them were four to five times the price. On the stock side, maybe Air Canada is an example of a company that had become so toxic that it bottomed out at less than $1 per share in 2012, about one times annual earnings. From that low point, the stock was set up to benefit from any positive development, and the price increased more than 50 times to its peak in early 2018. Graham introduces the last part with a line that Buffett has repeatedly quoted. Investment is most intelligent when it is most businesslike. Buffett has also followed up with a related line. I am a better investor because I am a businessman, and I am a better businessman because I am an investor. What do Graham and Buffett mean by these quotes? I interpret them as stating that owning a stock, which is fractional ownership in a real business, and direct ownership in a business are very related. Over a long enough time period, your returns in a stock should resemble the underlying business's returns in the reinvestment of its earnings. And the same goes for the returns from directly owning a business, barring, of course, an extreme difference in the multiple at which you buy and sell the business or stock. The chapter ends with a declaration of four business principles that apply to investing. One, do not try to make abnormal profits out of your investments. That is, returns beyond normal interest and dividend income unless you have special insights as you would with your own operating business. Two, just as you shouldn't let anyone else run your business unless you can supervise performance with the right care and comprehension, or unless you have a good reason to trust the manager's ability, the same goes for entrusting someone to manage your money. Three, just as you wouldn't embark on a new business venture without sound calculations supporting the chance to earn a decent return, the same goes for investing decisions. They should be based not on optimism, but on calculations on how the business will perform, the value of the business, and how the current price compares to the value. 4. Have the courage of your knowledge and experience. If you have formed a conclusion from facts and are confident in your judgment, act on it, even if everyone else disagrees with you. And with that, he shares another line that Buffett has quoted through the decades. You are neither right or wrong because the crowd disagrees with you. You are right because your data and reasoning are right. Personally, I think this is a critical point. We are constantly bombarded with so much noise and other people's opinions that if you aren't clear about why you own a stock or haven't reached your conclusion based on sound reasoning, it's unlikely you'll stick with it through tough times. Now, don't take it as a license to be stubborn. Far from it. Just have the courage to think and act independently of anyone else. As long as the actions are supported by the correct analysis, and you can admit when you end up being wrong. All right, good evening, Stephen. I read this chapter for the first time ever, 
and I came away with some questions. First off, this chapter uses the term stocks and bonds interchangeably when explaining the margin of safety. So by definition, can you explain stocks and bonds? What's the difference between the two? Just think of stocks as ownership of the business. Whereas bonds, if you own a bond, you're lending the business money. So you do not have ownership in the business. You're just entitled to receive your principal plus your interest payments back. So of course, if you have, if you own a business, you're entitled to all the upside and the downside uh, over time. So if the business grows, you should benefit off that. Whereas with a bond, you benefit from just being a lender. So you know you'll, you'll benefit from an interest rate and. But the thing with bonds is that uh, because you can buy them uh, over an exchange, then what happens is if you buy them at a discount, then you're entitled to even more upside to receive your principal uh, on top of the interest payments. So what do you mean by buying a bond at a discount? So because anything that trades on an exchange is it's essentially an auction, there are times when bonds can also become undervalued. So if the price of a bond if it's issued at what we call par at $100 and let's say the perceived risk of the company goes up, then the price that of which you can acquire that uh, can decrease. Uh, so you can buy bonds at a bargain as well and you're entitled to receive the, uh, the principal at the end or the par, what we call the par value. Now, the, I guess the chief distinction is that with a bond, uh, typically you have a priority in the claim of the assets of the company. So if a company went bankrupt and went through liquidation, uh, the bondholders would receive the proceeds of that liquidation uh, ahead of the equity holders. So the bondholders would receive proceeds ahead of stockholders? That's exactly it. Okay. okay. So a bond is a loan? A bond is a loan, yeah. And typically, Bonds, they fluctuate less uh, in price. With equities, they tend to fluctuate a lot more wildly, uh, but in exchange, uh, you get the benefits of growth over time of the underlying company or the decline if the company uh, deteriorates. Okay, I think I'm getting that. Next question. How is P-E ratio calculated? Explain this to a non-mathematical person and explain it in the simplest terms possible. Like, how do I calculate that? And then, why is this important to calculate? And then I'm assuming if you calculate it over time, how often do you need to recalculate the P-E ratio for your business? So, a P-E ratio, P stands for price and E earnings. P-E is price divided by annual earnings. If you flip that around, it becomes earnings over price and you'll get a uh, percentage. So just think about the, the most straightforward and intuitive way you can think of it is think of a break-even number of years. If you pay a PE of 10 times, let's say you buy a local laundromat and you pay, let's say, $500,000, that's the price, to buy it off someone else. And the annual earnings, which is stable, is $50,000. Then you're paying 10 times what the business earns in a year to buy the company. That implies that if nothing else changes, it takes 10 years to break even uh, on your investment. So that's an intuitive way to think about it. 
in investing, whether it's value investing or growth investing, this ratio was referred to a lot because it has intuitive value. So going back to the laundromat example, uh, if you paid uh, 10 times annual earnings and those earnings were just flat and not growing, you get a sense of the payback period. Well, let you flip that around. $50,000 that this laundromat earns divided by the price, 500000 gives you an earnings yield of 10%. You can take that 10% as a rough proxy of annual return and compare it to your other options. So if, uh, say, a bond yields something far less, uh, then we can say here that we're getting uh, that difference. Just a rough approximation, really. But also, remember, there's a lot of ins and outs of using this ratio. So with stocks, because the uh, prices tend to fluctuate wildly by a lot during a year for really any given stock, P-E ratio changes daily. Because your earnings aren't necessarily changing so fast, but the price tends to fluctuate more. So effectively, you have a different price-to-earnings ratio every day because... For a stock, it's publicly quoted. But if you take a private business, it's still the same concept, except you don't have a daily quotation uh, floating around on you. But still, when you buy a share on an exchange, you are buying a piece of the business. It's just that you're faced with these price fluctuations. All right. That makes sense to me. Do you look for businesses that reinvest their earnings back into their own company? buying back their own stocks or purchasing more equipment to support their business? Or how do you look at this? Yeah, so how I look at it, it depends on the business itself. So if you have a slower growing business, what we call a mature business, it sees its options as more limited in terms to how it can reinvest its money. Well, let's look at the Canadian banks, what you'll see. Because they are somewhat mature businesses, they'll typically pay out, say, 60% of their earnings as dividends and reinvest 40% of their earnings. What is right in that regard? It depends first on the stage the business has reached and its promise and perhaps track record of reinvesting those earnings profitably. Yeah, as far as reinvesting the earnings, you know, a company has a couple of options. Well, one is to invest in organic projects. They grow, say for a bank, they might want to grow more branches or invest in new segments. Or they could be acquiring uh, other companies. That's another valid use if done well. And also another one you mentioned repurchasing stock. That is an option whereby the company buys its own shares on the open market and then cancels them so there's fewer shares. That is a popular option as well. Which one is right? Uh, yeah, it depends how the valuation is one to another. So if a company can buy its own stock back for say four times earnings, which is a 25% earnings yield, the company knows its own business very well, that becomes a very attractive uh, use if the valuation is that low. In a situation like that, that would be very favorable as long as the company's balance sheet, meaning its debt levels could take it, as long as competing alternatives weren't as attractive. It could be very well that a company's own stock is very cheap, but the company still prefers to another use. It could very well be that a company's stock is cheap, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the buyback is uh, the right option. So we see this time and again. 
there are times when companies have made acquisitions that don't seem as cheap, but strategically it was the right thing to do. It paid off. And then only in hindsight could you have seen that that was the right thing versus you know, buying back stock. Great. Okay, next thing that came up for me in this chapter was the theory of diversification. I'm asking you, in your opinion, what is the optimal number of stocks for portfolio? And at the low end, what would you see the low end? And what would you say at the high end? So what's perfect? And then what's low and high? What are the ranges for you? I have my own parameters I set that I think make sense to prevent against too much of a loss if one idea goes wrong. I don't think there is a strict right answer for this question. We'll see mutual funds. Some of them have hundreds of stocks. You know, some are very concentrated. I just go off the principle that we can always be wrong. What we want is some kind of give and take here. So some kind of balance between your best ideas being given a chance to really contribute to the return and at the same time temper that with the possibility that no matter how sure we are about any one idea, you can end up being wrong. That's all. So you know, personally, I have a rule that I don't, when I purchase a security for a client that it's no more than 10% of the market value at the time I purchase it. And if anything reaches 20%, I'll automatically dial it back. And of course, that's not a bad problem to have. If it reached 20, it would mean that the price surged in the meantime, or also on top of that, it's not just that, but so when it comes to when to sell, that's always the toughest thing. I do have some strict parameters or guardrails that personally set for clients. If a holding reaches a certain percentage, I will automatically sell a portion of the security off. But you can't remove the art from this as, in my belief, you cannot quantify too much how to do this. At the end of the day, I just think that my opinion is that say do-it-yourself investors should have no more than 10% of their capital invested in one stock at cost. That, I'm not saying that's right. That's just uh, my belief. And you should have enough time to investigate into the company. Now, I understand some people might have company uh, share purchase plans where the company matches their purchases for the company stock. I Maybe mean, that's a bit of a different thing because the companies will give an incentive to buy at a discount. Generally, I think it's good to have some diversification in your life. If you're going to be heavily exposed to equities, you have to understand the risks of being concentrated into one asset class. It all depends on the individual, I think, on what their goals are and what their willingness is to tolerate fluctuations and their need for the capital. So I always tell potential clients or even existing clients that if they need the money, if they need to be able to access it and spend it within a few years to really not put it in equities if they can help it. Next question. So in the chapter, Benjamin Graham, he talks about investments and speculation stocks. Can you give me some real life examples of what he means by the two? I think an easy way to think about whether something is an investment or speculation is what was the thought process when purchasing the stock? or any kind of investment for that matter. So the question is, when is a stock an investment versus a speculation? I don't think there's a strict definition here, but Ben Graham wrote about investing as situations where you're making commitments based on having a good idea of protecting principle while having the possibility of earning a decent return. Speculation is more associated with 
people jumping on the bandwagon or looking for quick flips or very short-term profits like day trading without doing any calculation or due diligence on the fundamentals of the company. That is the health and the growth prospects of the company and connecting those dots with valuation. What price are you paying versus what you reasonably think the company is worth? Okay, can we go back to your example from the uh, laundromat? And can you give like a real example of this is an investment type stock or a speculation stock? Can you give me something tangible to understand? When it comes to stocks, again, you're buying a an interest in the business. If a company has 100 shares and you buy one share, you own 1% of the company. I know that's not how a lot of people think about investing. They, they think about what's hot right now uh, or what's growing very fast without connecting the dot with valuation. When it comes to stocks, I, I did talk about the laundromat example. If, you want, if we want to stick with that example, if someone was to speculate on a local laundromat and it earned $50,000, that person may not even care to earn 50000 Maybe laundromats are hot this year and they'll pay $2 million for it, mm. which would be 40 times its earnings for something that's not growing quickly. Uh, that would be a speculation because the person didn't think about what the investment should yield based on what it's earning, did not kind of you know, triangulate at all with what's going on in the local economy and how that would translate to growth in that laundromat. Now, with a stock, well, that's easier to see. We witnessed a lot of people, see, with the pot stock bubble that happened uh, a few years ago, a lot of people were messaging me personally, uh, asking what they needed to do to buy pot stocks for their accounts or what I thought of them. It was clear they hadn't done any work on them. And of course, very few, if any of them, have actually generated free cash flow. So free cash flow is when the company has something left over after paying all of its expenses. With pot stocks or even Bitcoin, you cannot arrive at that. So it's hard to see how something is self-sustaining. So that's one of my requirements is that a business is self-sustaining, meaning it doesn't need to raise any kind of capital, doesn't need to borrow or issue equity in order to just survive. I like that answer. All right, on to the next question. So this book was published in 1949. It's quite a long time ago. I'm sure in your head you could quickly do the math of how long ago that was. It's 2020 now. But how do you think the author would have assessed Facebook as a stock? Facebook is a popular uh, tech stock. I think it's an excellent company. And personally, I underestimated what this company could do uh, and just the scalability of all these social media companies and how they would eventually become extreme cash-generating machines. Now, that said... If we look at Facebook, I believe it IPO'd in 2012. And as a disclaimer, it's not a company I've studied extremely in depth. But I don't think that Ben Graham would have shot for this type of investment, especially when it IPO'd. It was not profit-making yet. So I think that alone would have disqualified it uh, from his list. But one thing to note about Graham is that he wasn't just static. Early in his career, after the Great Depression, he advocated on buying net nets, so situations where the price was less than the net current asset value of the company, meaning if you took uh, its all its current assets, cash, accounts receivable, you know, inventories, and then subtracted all liabilities, he required that the price be less than that. Well, guess what? It's hard to find that. In fact, later in his career, he admitted that it was, or such situations are harder to find. There was more competition. So if you fast forward to today, 
it's almost impossible to find such situations. And when they're available, only in very microcap type companies, which an investor of any size or an investor managing any significant size of capital would not be able to invest in such securities to move uh, the needle. Graham, he had to adapt to the times. That's a very interesting question, and I frankly don't know what he would think of Facebook today. I think Graham would have acknowledged the astounding properties of all these internet companies. So whether it's Facebook, um, Amazon, Netflix. Pinterest. Sure, Pinterest, Google, that although they might not show earnings up front, they're able to grow and grow at relatively very little incremental cost because they grow through the internet. They're extremely scalable. So in, in his day, if you had an industrial company or any typical service company, would need physical presence to grow. So whereas with the internet companies, that's a lot less so. And I think he would have recognized that. But whether that this would have gotten past his principle of margin of safety, where you'd have to project pretty healthy growth rates to justify current valuations, that's I'm not sure that it would have passed what his uh, his threshold of margin of safety is. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I've never read any business textbooks or novels or anything of the sort until now. So after reading Chapter 20, Margin of Safety, uh, your explanation does help me a lot in understanding what he was talking about. And for everyone else... If you liked this podcast, please share it uh, with a friend and click the follow button. We really appreciate your support. Thank you.